1: Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books Network. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. The humanities finds itself at a crossroads. Abandoned in droves by students, belittled by champions of instrumental knowledge, and assailed by cultural critics on both the right and the left, the humanistic disciplines appear lost in internecine squabbles over intellectual turf, decimated in wars of attrition over sometimes hair-splitting differences of theory and method. How should scholars of the humanities, and especially scholars of religion, emerge from their methodological cocoons to help illuminate religious traditions in ways that help us make sense of them and indeed help us live better lives? To this, an impassioned and articulate answer has been given by Richard B. Miller, the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Professor of Religion, Politics, and Ethics at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Full disclosure, Professor Miller was a member of my dissertation committee. In Why Study Religion... Published by Oxford University Press in 2022, Professor Miller critiques various methodological approaches to the study of religion and offers his own in the form of critical humanism, which proposes a dynamic and flexible approach to the study of religion that does not sacrifice engagement on the altar of value neutrality, nor occlude understanding through overemphasis on theory. Professor Miller joins me today to talk about why study religion. Professor Miller... Thank you so much for joining me in this conversation.
0: Thank you, David, and thank you for that wonderfully precise and uh, frankly provocative uh, summary of the book.
1: Um, I'm
0: grateful that it's going to lead to a good discussion. <laughs> Likewise. Um, first,
1: tell us a little something about your scholarship. What issues? periods, texts, and problems do you focus on in your work?
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm a scholar of religion, politics, and ethics, and I examine the interconnections between those three concepts and practices and intellectual traditions. So I think about the ethical ramifications of religious belief and practice. Um, I also think about how religion can inform ethical norms, ethical values, ethical purposes, and about the political ramifications of religious belief and practice and and how they affect institutions in which we reside and how they offer forms of power or counterpower to settled uh, dispositions and habits of mind uh, in public life. My, and how? Yeah, just yeah. Go ahead. Just to continue for a second. Yeah. So um, you know, most of my work has been in the Christian tradition, but um, I do try to think more broadly about how to uh, compare Christian practices and beliefs, etc., with other religious traditions and um, uh, institutions. Um, and I've done that really across the arc of uh, Western thought, you know. So I do think both about classical figures and contemporary figures uh, in the study of religion and ethics.
1: So, can you tell us a little bit about how that sort of broad, uh, but also in my experience, very deep disciplinary focus led you to f- focus sort of on a meta
0: level on? religious studies itself? Well, that's a good question. I mean, one of my interests uh, in the study of religion, ethics, and politics is about moral subjectivity, moral motivation, moral psychology, moral formation. You know, how do we become the kinds of subjects we are? Uh, How do we respond to various influential forces and sources of cultural and political and religious authority? Um, and so that's, that's one organizing question in the book. I also think about matters of theory and method in the study of ethics, what sorts of frameworks organize the way in which we answer basic questions that face us, uh, in daily life. And, you know, I think about the field of the study of religion and ethics more broadly, and those, those impulses, as it were, uh, formed a perfect storm to help me step back and think about the field of religious studies and what I'm calling the ethics of religious studies, which uh, you know, I'm arguing has been a neglected question in the field. And so one of my organizing questions is what, what motivates the study of religion and what can scholars today do to motivate a new generation of Um, scholars, you know, what's the future of the field look like? And have we rendered it attractive such that people can understand that there's real intellectual excitement and purpose to what we do? So it kind of moved, you know, my work sort of moved gradually uh, to to step back and try to wrap my mind around the field more generally and what some of its organizing purposes and procedures are uh, as we carry them out today. So um, I think that's what I'm about to ask you is already implicit in the
1: answer you just gave, but I want to ask if you can um, give us sort of a nickel tour on your perspective of what the problem, what the central problem is in the humanities, in the academy today, and specifically in religious studies. And, and how um, religious studies
0: painted itself into the corner that you depict it as being in? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, and my view is that the, the field, and I think the humanities more broadly, but focusing on religious studies for the moment, Really suffers from what I call a, a methodolatry or a preoccupation with matters of methodology and theories about the proper method or methods that should be deployed to studying religion. And so with that in mind, I identify six general paradigms or orientations in the field that each proffer a particular theory about the proper method uh, for carrying out research practices in the guild. Um, and I argue that um, these debates about method have been going on for a good half century and there's no real resolution in sight. there's a it's the field I think is suffering from an increasing, bout of uh, rep, you know repetitiveness uh, and almost predictable repetitiveness about uh, which theory ought to garner our allegiance for studying religious phenomena, and I argue that that um, that preoccupation, that ongoing repetitive preoccupation, is really a function of there being uh, an absence uh, about purpose, or value, or end, or the teleology for studying religion. Uh, I draw on uh, Stephen Toulmin's important work uh, in the philosophy of the sciences, and one of Tullman's op- uh, observations is that uh, in, the sci- in the natural sciences, debates about um, theory and method uh, erupt when there is doubt about the proper purpose or end of scientific inquiry. But once there is some kind of consensus, um, scientists are able to go back to work, as it were, go to work without being preoccupied about, as it were, the research protocols that ought to shape their inquiry. And I argue that there's a real parallel problem in the study of religion, you know, that insofar as we continue to proceed without some sense of our purposes, these debates about methodology are just never going to end. And we're not going to be able to articulate what it is about we what we do that's desirable and attractive uh, to future scholars in the guild. So interesting. You know, <clears throat> it raises a couple
1: of uh, other questions that I wanted to Ask you later on, and I want to ask them now because it's, I think, germane to what you've just said. And and one of those questions is that a a significant part of the book is is devoted, as you've pointed out, to really sustained and insightful critiques of specific theoretical and scholarly orientations of several scholars of religion, and you do that before offering your own theoretical and methodological approach. and this is, as, as you know, I have not read all of your work, but I've read enough of your work to say that um, uh, there is, that you often, not often, but I have seen you orient yourself critically um, to the works of other authors before offering your own work. And I find that a really stimulating way because you do it both respectfully, but very insightfully. And I'm wondering, uh, you know, why you chose the scholars that you chose, and, and how useful their theories were to you in articulating critical humanism.
0: Yeah, that's actually a, a great and multi-pronged question. Let me uh, sort out a few parts to it and, and tackle them. Um, so I chose six organizing paradigms, six quite distinct ones in the field and then identified what i judge to be their prominent spokespersons who represent and who tried to theorize or develop arguments on behalf of one or another of these models of research and my principle of selection is that you know they they aim to offer a comprehensive theory um, for organizing the study of religion they do so in ways that have been highly visible and also influential. So um, th- they're really recognizable exponents, um, n- relatively well known, if not very well known, to other scholars in the guild. Widely taught um, in courses on theory and method, and so you know, I thought that with with the, with that principle of selection in place. I could identify the general patterns that characterize each model, and then rather than just speak in those generic terms about what that model represents and what its foils and features are, I really dove into, as you say, the specific individuals who avow Uh, One or another model and develop uh, an exposition of their ideas and then within that exposition identify what I consider to be some logical um, And other flaws that characterize their views There's a second reason I chose them though and it takes us back to um, You know the organizing impulses of the book And that is, I I argue that there is this aspiration to value neutrality, as you rightly uh, point out in your summary, Um, but that that aspiration uh, actually requires scholars to repress their values, their commitments, their intuitions, their feelings, et cetera, and that that repression really is unsuccessful, that at, at some point, as it were, in their work, something that looks like a normative um, commitment or value materializes in ways that just doesn't sit well or comfortably or logically uh, within the organizing uh, parameters of the theory. So I'm trying to identify the f- or make, call attention to the fact that um, this aspiration to value neutrality is sort of doomed to fail, and we see those failures in the works under review in the book. So I call that uh, not only an aspiration to value neutrality, but also a crypto-normativity that that is, as it were, as, uh, um, coursing through discussions of theory and method and I'm trying to argue that look you know rather than deny or repress these matters let's lift them up uh, to you know articulation and defense Uh, that's what I'm trying to push the field to do more generally when I turn to uh, the values of critical humanism so in
1: a way it, it seems like what you're saying, one of the things that you're saying is that, you know, your, your axiological orientation, Mm -hmm. your, your value orientation as a scholar and as a human being is Mm -hmm. kind of always already there. Yeah. Yes. And that an attempted value neutrality
0: is fundamentally doomed to failure. Is that correct? That's right. That's exactly right. And, um, you know, what I'm trying to urge the field to do is is to be cognizant of these, not to be afraid of them or, as it were, allergic to them and understand that um, such matters are organizing their own thinking uh, and to bring those out more explicitly. So one thing I'm trying to do in that exposition, as you point out, is to make plain, make more explicit matters that otherwise sit implicitly within one or another theoretical construct and uh, urge the field to make those matters explicit and then to push um, themselves to articulate reasons to make sense of them uh, and thereby deepen uh, the rationale that they may have to offer.
1: Mm-hmm. So interesting.
0: So but let's step if I could just interrupt. Yes, yeah, sure. And I don't want to go on too long, but, um, you know, another thing I, I want to do in that you know, as you say, detailed exposition and critique is to exhibit or to practice what I think is a close, careful reading of, uh, you know, in this case, several theorists and their and in places, their own efforts to apply their thinking to an example. Um, So I want to, you know, make plain that I've not only that I've done the due diligence for when thinking about these These projects, but also to make plain to other scholars, if you're going to critique somebody, you better get into their thinking and into the weeds uh, before you come out with a judgment or an assessment.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting that... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you're very respectful of all the scholars, regardless of the extent to which you agree with um, or find soundness in their methodological uh, approaches. Um, But you also, you know, you're, you're respectful of them and you take something from each of them. It seems as though the critiques build on each other so that by the time, for example, we get to Kevin Shilbrack's work, there's a lot to recommend it. Uh, But he doesn't answer an ultimate question uh, in his work, which you point out, which is, why do we do what we do? He asks the question. But at least as far as you and I know, he, he doesn't answer it. What is What is the answer that you present to that question, why do this work?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I really do try to lift up some features or commendable features across the arc of that exposition and show where my own thinking my own way of thinking would join cause here and there with what these other projects um, are lifting up for consideration. What I then turn to, uh, you know, in the constructive part of the book is an articulation of the values of what I call critical humanism. And those four values are uh, post-critical reasoning, social criticism, cross-cultural fluency, and environmental responsibility. And I argue that these are values that are central to the work of humanists in the university today, and I articulate what sorts of values uh, are specific to each of these particular um, modes of thought or inquiry, et cetera, and that there are ways in which we can understand the study of religion as both contributing to these values and also being informed and shaped by them. So I try to articulate uh, various Values that organize how we think humanistically, and what it is about those values that commend themselves, and what it is about the study of religion that can join cause with those values, and also contribute to the way in which humanistic thought uh, occurs. Really interesting, and I wonder
1: if you can address a little bit. And you do this in the book, but if you can tell us how uh, how critical humanism. First of all, what its genealogy is. Let's talk a little bit about um, how it emerges from earlier streams of thought. Can you give us some sense of that?
0: Well, um, you know, humanism as uh, an organizing way of thinking about scholarship has roots in the Renaissance. Um, It certainly has uh, roots in German thinking about Bildung or the formation of the person in education. Um, Those are two broad uh, ways in which thinking about humanism as an organizing feature of knowledge and scholarship have emerged in the West. I really don't develop in the book um, a genealogy from those or other sorts of Sources. I, I really begin. uh, You might say more philosophically than genealogically or historically, and uh, talk about what it means to know, and that knowledge entails a knowledge of an other. That there's always the matter of difference that leverages or catalyzes uh, human thought, and so I take that basic insight and develop it uh, across the arc of these four values and try to articulate that in each case, moving from post-critical thinking uh, in relation to a text or a tradition or a cultural artifact, how that, as it were, can be developed uh, rather carefully through attentive and effective as well as cognitive uh, exploration but that there are perils to just post-critical reasoning as the only value, that we have to be mindful of how language and religious beliefs and mythologies, etc., can seduce us, can exercise a, court, a kind of sorcery. And thus, with that limit in mind, we need to think about the political and social and cultural implications of religious belief in practice and their images and uh, institutions, etc., in light of what I call social criticism. So the second value works dialectically to correct for certain potential excesses of the first, um, and then I, I develop that logic moving from social criticism to thinking not only about how we want to think about power and language in relation to our own social worlds, but also. C- Cosmo, in a cosmopolitan way, because of course, religion pushes us to think about um, cultural beliefs, practices, institutions, etc., across the globe. And so that's how cross-cultural fluency can protect against the potential for social criticism to be parochial or overly local. Okay. So then you've got that expanding range um, of inquiry that then, you know, has us pause and think about whether even that turn emphasizes the human person too much at the expense of a wider set of environmental necessities, vulnerabilities, conditions, etc., um, And hence the fourth value, which is meant to correct for the potential for the other three to be anthropocentric.
1: Really interesting. And I think it's especially uh, important because uh, this last point you've made, because it, it emphasizes how um, our concept of religion is itself largely a Western conception, and as a result can cause us to overlook a variety of traditions, uh, practices, embodied rituals, um, combinations of forms of living in the world that classically wouldn't be considered religions, but under this rubric, definitely could and should be. Is that correct?
0: That's right. Um, you know, as you nicely said at the uh, introduction, um, what I'm trying to offer is a dynamic and dialectical way of thinking about religion in relation to, uh, you know, the human person and cultural formations and social institutions, and with that, I also offer or try to, you know, proffer a picture of the human as dynamic and, pardon me, and as historical and as explorative and curious, you know. So I talk about um, critical humanism as a process term rather than an achievement term. So know when we think about the human, it's not like I have an ideal that's fixed and settled and uh, unambiguous, but that serves as a kind of ideal toward which to aim and to understand that we are as human creatures, as it were, ourselves, um, developmental, um, exploratory, and subject to change in important ways. And that's true of how we think or should think about religious phenomena as well.
1: So, and that um, raises uh, another question, which is how does can you talk a little bit about how critical humanism encounters uh, the idea of belief and how you critique and analyze other conceptions of belief in the scholars that you analyze in your book? Hmm.
0: Well, I think one of the bugbears in the field is this idea of belief. And um, I think that interrogating that concept has meant good news and bad news as it were, um, for you know scholars of religion, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, so certainly um, the, an, an, an emphasis on belief in the study of religion has really crowded out other features of religion, you know it, it practices, institutions, as you noted, rituals, the more practical and embodied features of religion, um, and so the category has rightly been held up uh, as doing um, well reductive work, as it were, and as it were, making non—let's say—making religions that don't have the West as their providence seem second-rate or like second class citizens uh, in the world of religion. So that kind of critique, I think, has been important. But it is also a critique that might throw the baby out with the bathwater and that there are certain excessive rejections of the category that I would argue or warn against. And and here I do draw from Kevin Shilbrecht's work, you know, and the idea that a belief, you know, strictly speaking, is taking something as true. Um, and then a warranted belief is a belief that stands up to critical scrutiny, that there are reasons and evidence that might support it. So I believe, you know, this morning when I got up, I believed that you and I were going to have this conversation. I took that as true and I acted on that premise. So that kind of belief is really a condition of moral agency and, and conduct. And that's a category or concept belief that I don't think we can do without. We can't explain human behavior, religious or otherwise, without that category.
1: Interesting. So, so a belief can be uh, warranted in terms of being uh, verifiable Contingent upon certain facts, but it can also just be when I say just, I mean, it can also be an axiological orientation that this is a guiding value that I live by that infuses meaning in everything that I do and experience and doesn't have to do or doesn't only have to do with what I think to be true that may or may not be warranted. Is that is that accurate?
0: That's accurate. And I would I would scale it down a step as well, not to exclude everything you've just said, but um, not only the things that we value and consider meaningful and organizing, but just, you know, assumptions we make on which we act, you know, in the most everyday way, you know, behaviors, whether they're in a pursuit of meaning or not, really just rely on, um, some ba- very basic axioms that we take as true in order to structure our behavior and correct for it. If those assumptions or beliefs, you know, prove themselves to be unreliable.
1: hmm hmm So I want to, um, talk to you a little bit about textual engagement. I think you say several important things about the notion of textual engagement. Uh, One is that uh, the study of religion, uh, if I understand you correctly, too often sort of defaults into analyzing the text as as the first and sometimes only guidepost by which we analyze a religion, which disprivileges all the embodied And daily and even quotidian things that go on. Um, Is that accurate? I want you to talk a little bit about that and about textual engagement uh, in general.
0: Yeah, a couple of things there. Again, another nice multi-pronged question. Um, So certainly you're right. One of the dangers in close, careful textual engagement as the locus for um, studying religion is that it, it crowds out a wider body of religiously relevant data and in fact data that may be more important to religious beliefs or believers or practitioners than the beliefs themselves this is a a, you know a well-known turn in the study of religion now that um, we clearly want to look at cultural artifacts forms of ritual ways in which beliefs are embodied in everyday life matters of dress uh, etc um, and so, you know, a, a, a concentration on texts themselves may, as it were, crowd out attention to this wider uh, circumference of religiously ve- relevant phenomena. But so, so that's one line of argument that I'm entirely sympathetic with and would want to carry into uh, the study of critical hum- religion and critical humanism. But it's also the case that, um, you know, when thinking only about textual engagement, for example, putting aside that that first set of points, you know, one thing I do is I, I develop a distinction between what I call vernacular near and vernacular distant forms of inquiry when we're talking about texts. And that's a way in which I want to articulate the importance of really doing deep, careful, textually uh, sensitive and attuned and linguistically informed analysis of textual materials, but also to make sure that in the study of religion, we're not doing that in a way that's only, as it were, although these are certainly important modes of inquiry in the university area studies approaches, that there's some broader rubric or category vernacular distant concept that's organizing that inquiry in in a way that sheds light on the phenomenon of religion more broadly. You know, and that's a, a lesson I take from Jonathan C. Smith. I think he's entirely correct about that. But, but in addition to that, I, I argue and I draw on the, the literary critic, um, Rita Felsky, that there are effective dynamics in a reader's relationship with his or her or their textual materials. And, uh, I, build on her thinking to articulate what she calls a neo phenomenology that gets at the effective responses that we typically experience when engaging a text. And, you know, that we should be able to articulate and think about the sorts of attachments that those effective relationships or responses, pardon me, those effective responses uh, can give rise to, right? Uh, not that we do that uncritically, but I want to get that into our understanding of, of textual readings and uh, analysis as well.
1: Does this apply and how does this apply to the reading of canonical texts, which for scholars and students of religion is almost always a rereading, right? Even if you've not been steeped in religious practice, these things seep into the culture and you're familiar with the architecture and the dogma, how can you give an example of how these modes of inquiry would work with a canonical text?
0: Well, certainly, um, I think that adds another layer and uh, to the work that scholars of religion do, but I would you know, argue that scholars in, in the humanities do. And that is always to be aware of the history of reception and uh, traditioning uh, that shapes uh, a religious artifact datum practice institution etc so of necessity we enter into when we study religion and again i think uh humanistic artifacts more generally into a wider conversation we have to be in critical con- dialogue with um the received thinking about uh, matters in question so that too is is a component of I'll call it let's say the vernacular distant nature of our thinking, um, and we're always in dialogue with those, or we should be. We should be trained to understand the history of of uh, thinking and practice around the phenomenon in question, and that means you know. And this is something as as you rightly point out. I try to enact a respectful, but also critical a way in which we can interrogate those materials. Right, right. And so
1: I want to sort of focus for a moment on the, the ethical and political aspect of this work, which I don't think is, um, ex- which is very strongly there implicitly. And I want to ask what you're calling scholars and students of religion to sort of enact in their lives, in terms of a fundamental orientation. At the beginning, I was maybe too bold to say, you know, you're really calling people to a certain fundamental ethical uh, orientation. So I guess what I'm asking is, how do you hope that teachers and students of religion carry a critical humanistic orientation, not only into their fields of study, but into the rest of their lives?
0: Yeah. that's a great question and thank you for that in many ways it does get right to the heart of the book you know and that is that um i argue that the ethics of religious studies means being able to offer justificatory reasons reasons that justify the practice reasons that provide um, an account of the ends or purposes that make sense Of uh, the study of religion very basically. And uh, I'm hoping that if nothing else, you know, the book will prompt people to know that being able to offer reasons to justify their course, their principles of selection, the aims of a curriculum, that that's really important. And that we likely do that at least implicitly or inchoately, but to be able to as it were, overcome what I think is a kind of inarticulacy about these matters and make them public and explicit and and defend them, right? So I hope we can do that as scholars in the field. Jonathan Z. Smith calls that answering, you know, the so what question. Um, And I think he's right about that. And I'm arguing to answer the so what question with ways that, as it were, offer justificatory reasons to make, you know, a pitch or a plea to others in a space of what I call intersubjective rationality. So I hope that people take that and also understand they can, should do that in their lives, you know, that, that they should be able to account you know, the, the critical humanism finally is a, an argument for accountability uh, regarding our decisions uh, and pedagogical practices and research decisions.
1: And my my final question for you, then, is how will mm-hmm. this work uh, be carried forward in what you're working on now mm-hmm. and what comes next for you?
0: Um, no, that's a good question. Uh, let me pause for a second. So I guess I would say that um, what carries over into my new thinking, my new projects, pardon, what carries over into my new work um, would I think move along, or does move along, two pathways. In on one, I've been asked to uh, contribute to the fiftieth anniversary of the Journal of Religious Ethics. There'll be a there'll be four volumes published in 2023. And I turned to the question, why study religious ethics? That there's uh, an inarticulacy there in my own subfield, as it were, about matters of purpose and justification. So um, I read the 50 years of the Journal of Religious Ethics uh, and I I have a a knowledge of a a wide body of uh, books, et cetera, and collections in the field. And so I offer, you know, pulling from the book, an effort to provide reasons for studying religious ethics and the sorts of values that I think we should pursue or are pursuing, but uh, pursuing in ways that aren't overtly or explicitly articulated. So I'm turning from this big question about religious studies back to my own area of religious ethics uh, and offer a kind of omnibus Um, overview of patterns in the field and a proposal about how it can move in the future. So that's one line of thinking. The other is more remote, and I'm not sure there is a close affinity between it and uh, why study religion. Uh, And it's a more focused project on the area of moral luck, um, and the, here, I guess, we're turning or I'm turning from a concern for moral subjectivity and moral formation and moral motivation and moral psychology, which, you know, as I said earlier, is at the heart of why study religion in terms of thinking about reasons that motivate individuals. So I'm turning to moral luck as a phenomenon of human experience that conditions how we judge Uh, Human decisions and the effects of human agency beyond what's intended. So, I, I, you know, many people critique or have critiqued why study religion because of worries about a kind of essentializing of the human subject. Uh, I don't think that's true about why study religion, but certainly in this new book, I'm making plain that human agency is very much vulnerable to and conditioned by and often judged in terms of matters that lie beyond rational volition um, to include uh, the, the facts of accident, misfortune, good fortune, et cetera, that those all complicate the way in which we think about human agency and human responsibility. And so that's the next piece of my think my work uh, that will be the next book project.
1: We will uh, eagerly anticipate that uh, because it's a really interesting extension um, of of the way that you approach religious ethics and and in fact I would even say even just calling it luck raises lots of interesting questions right from a religious perspective absolutely uh, and really important ones yes absolutely. Uh, Mm-hmm. So I, we will eagerly look forward, I hope, to being able to talk about that work as well. I'd love to. My guest today has been Richard B. Miller, the Laura Spellman Rockefeller Professor of Religion, Politics, and Ethics at the University of Chicago Divinity School. And we've been discussing his landmark work, Why Study Religion?, published by Oxford University Press in 2022. Professor Miller, thanks so much for having this
0: conversation with me. Thank you very much, David, it's been a pleasure.